Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, let's the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel... I would ask how it's going, but uh, it's been a difficult week for TV fans. Lots of cancellations, a few renewals. It's been an emotional few days. It has been, and um, I've been trying to keep up with it as much as possible. And it's it's been like a it's been like a little it's been a little up and down, mostly down, mostly Mostly down, down. a lot of down. Let's start with the up, yeah, and so that we can actually enjoy the up and before. Mm bogged down in the down the the highlight of the renewals for me is definitely speechless season three yeah what about you yeah no absolutely i uh, for me there's not really another one that i'm more excited about is that one um so yeah that and surprise kind of sort of as well mm-hmm. um but yeah yeah speechless uh getting I'm, I'm just really glad about that um it doesn't balance out some of the other stuff yeah but um i'm glad about that and i'm are, are you glad that outlander is getting a two-season pickup yeah sure like I, yeah. yay i mean yeah. but like uh, my interest in outlander is wavering a bit after mm-hmm. the end of season three because it wasn't great um yeah. and so we'll see uh, my interest in five and six will greatly depend on if they come back in solid form for season four because yeah. I, I revisited season one to go over on to podlander drunk cast and deep dive about the music which we did and i'll let y'all know when that episode comes out because it's like two hours of analyzing outlander music from season one and it was super duper fun they were very <laughs> they put up with lots of very, it was extreme nerdery over there um and like rewatching that first season, it's such like when I watched it the first time, I was like, okay, it's solid. It kind of takes a while, but when you rewatch it and you know what's coming and how they're putting it all together, it's such a strong first season. And the second season is even better. And then the third season starts really great, and then kind of collapses like a flan in a cupboard. In the immortal words of Eddie Izzard. Um, so yeah, that's a long way to say eh. Yes, yes, yay. People that I respect and admire getting two more seasons of work is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm, uh, yeah, way more excited about Speechless. And I think think we've, like, delayed this as long as we can. I'm also way more bummed about Brooklyn Nine-Nine getting canceled. But shopped around with apparently several places interested. Yeah, well, Netflix pulled out today, uh, which is... Absolutely not a surprise. Um, there was really no way this was going to end up in Netflix anyway. Um, so Hulu, NBC, and TBS are all still sort of like kicking the show's tires, as it were. Hulu, because it's apparently like their most popular show, um, even outpaces their originals. Um, TBS just picked up the syndication rights for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And Kevin Riley, who heads up TBS, shepherded Brooklyn Nine-Nine onto Fox five years ago, so he's got a close connection to that show. And then NBC is interested just because they... Brooklyn Nine-Nine is produced through Universal Television Studios, which in turn is owned by the parent company of NBC, Comcast, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So it's like a weird menagerie of people who might be interested in this show continuing it, um, which is all really, really good news for the show because it's 
delightful, as you and I talk about pretty much every week, or at least every other week when the show does something. And considering the fact that they're two episodes away from their finale, and their finale is the Gina Rodriguez episode, and... Yeah, just all this stuff that was like really lining up to be really great about the end of the season that hopefully someone picks it up. But at the same time, as a number of these cancellations prove, getting five seasons in this current TV landscape is something to also be cherished. (laughs) Yeah, well, unless you're Rick and Morty, you got picked up for 70 more episodes. Yes, I know that's an animation (laughs) thing and they plan way ahead with animated shows because like that's why that 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 happens. But like, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's a very different models and it's not fair to make the like, compare apples to oranges. But why nobody cares about the detour season four? Give us Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Come on. And I say that having read tweets from people very excited about the detour coming back. And we really liked it in like its earlier seasons. But, you know, <sighs> yeah. Oh, well. It's earlier seasons being, like, season one and half of season two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, but the expanse got canceled. I know that's a big one for a lot of sci-fi fans. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't going to be on the show anymore, but anyways, but, you know, no more John Cho and other such inspired casting over The Exorcist. Um, people have really enjoyed Last Man on Earth, but that one's done now. Uh, I, I'm actually kind of pondering if I should, like, get caught up on Santa Clarita Diet, because that got renewed, and people seem to really like the second season. Yeah, and I'm still like, nah. <laughs> I can't bring myself to do it, even though, I mean, who doesn't love Timothy Elephant? Mm-hmm. can't bring myself to do it. Fair enough. Any other ones where, you know, I know a friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker, will have, uh, you know, bid a fond farewell to Designated Survivor, which she covered for a very long time over at the AV Club, considering what that show is. <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, iZombie got a season five. Um, mm-hmm. that's okay-ish news, I guess. Okay. Um, given its current run has been less than stellar. Um, I think, like, the only thing from, like, a semi-historical perspective is Law & Order, um, SVU got a season 20. Uh, which puts it very, which puts it within, again, striking distance of hitting that Gunsmoke record that Dick Wolf is desperate to break. Yeah. Um, and didn't get to break with the Mothership Law and Order, so... It was a tent pole! Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'm sure everyone's hoping that they get to break it. Um, they're just, like, they're so close to that season 21. They really want that season 21. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, anything else? Um, we aren't getting Wayward Sisters. Right, Steve we aren't getting CW. Wayward Sisters. Um, CW's passed on that for reasons unspecified, um, but Andrew Dabb, um, who's worked on Supernatural for quite some time, um, was tweeting about it, and mm-hmm. they passed on that. ABC picked up like Grand Hotel and Whiskey Cavalier, which is Scott Foley's um, CIA agent action drama, mm-hmm. but it's bad news for Walking Dead fans. It's very bad news for Walking Dead fans, um, because Lauren Cohen is the co-lead on that, and... Yeah. Unless unless you've got a unless you're doing like a half season show, you do not have the time to do a full twenty two episodes and The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. So that is not good news for Maggie. <laughs> yeah, maybe Lauren Cohen wants to like be clean for a while. Yeah, and who can blame her? She's probably ready to stop filming in the heat of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will see what happens with that. Though if if she leaves Walking Dead and then like whiskey cavalier last three weeks like yeah that would be sad but yeah we'll see 
We'll see. Um, other news. Uh, I saw. What is this about NBC and Matt Lauer? But trying to say like the 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 button door buttons were like totally normal. Yeah. So NBC conducted an internal investigation regarding um, Matt Lauer's behavior, and they released the findings, and basically amounted to. People told us about it sometimes, but, you know, we didn't really have any evidence of it, so we didn't really do anything about it. And they also said that the uh, door buttons that closed the doors from the desk um, that were mentioned in the Variety's uh, breaking of this uh, are commonly available, and that's a direct quote, commonly available um, to people, but they don't lock the door. They just close the door, to which... I still go, no, that is not a thing that should be commonly available. Yeah. That is not okay. That is a that is not okay on any level. Mm-hmm. Very creepy. Um, yeah. Over in TV, uh, I guess, gossip, maybe. Uh, we talked about Lethal Weapon last time, the last time we did news, and Clint Crawford and the tension there. I see he's out. Yeah, but they haven't like the fact that they've announced that he's leaving the show. They're they're firing him. <laughs> he might be leaving the show in TV speak, but what that actually means is he's fired. But they haven't announced whether the season is gonna like the new season is gonna pick getting picked up, which I think that was interesting to announce the one but not the other. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do because of the fact that they have to recast that they have to recast Crawford. Um, and without being able to do that and being able to do that really really quickly as well. Um, especially given that Fox is basically a bloodbath right now because they've canceled pretty much everything, um, with the exception of like the Orville and the resident and star. Um, and they revived last man standing. Womp womp. We can't have Brooklyn nine, nine. Yeah. And probably to pay for, you know, Tim Allen's contract, which has to be massive. Um, but yeah, so I think a lot of it has to boil down to that they have to recast Crawford really, really quickly. And I think that'll hinge on whether or not they pick up season three or not. Yeah. Um, but it, Fox is Fox is in such a weird space anyway because of the Disney Disney deal that I don't know what Fox broadcasts the network itself, which Disney is not part. It is not part of that deal with Disney. Um, can or ha- will have the money to do so. Yeah. Well, we will see. And imagine by the time this gets out there, there will be a whole other spate of cancellations and pickups and renewals and everything. So this will already be out of date. But yeah, yeah, because all the ABC stuff was like dropping while we were starting to record, I think. So yeah, I will say I greatly appreciated the outpouring of support for Brooklyn Nine-Nine all over Twitter lost its goddamn mind. It did. Uh, It really, really did. I was appreciating all the high-profile support for yeah. Brooklyn Nine, like Lou Manuel Miranda being like, "I watched four things. This is one of those things. Don't take it away." Yeah, and then Mark Hamill and Sean Astin were both just like, "Come on, guys! I don't actually know what to be on the show. It's just really good." Yeah, it's just really good. Also, and Mark Hamill being like, "They always cancel things I like." <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw lots of great. Um, Memes and, and gifts from, of course, uh, the, one of our favorite listeners, Carl, um, of Save Enlisted fame, now Save Brooklyn Nine-Nine fame. So keep it up, <laughs> Carl. Um, and, yeah, we'll see what happens with it. But, uh, you know, particularly touching has been all the uh, tweets that I've been seeing go around um, applauding the show for its representation and how and really, you know, watching or reading, I guess, fans of that show 
dive into how much it means to them that like having more than one black guy on their cop show having yeah. more than one you know latina or, or latinx woman on on the show like you know having multiple queer characters having that kind you know queer person of color representation like and it's really funny you know yeah. and it's all these other things too uh it's been really great to see all of that so Hopefully we will get a reprieve if we don't. If nothing else, I'll just continue enjoying all the title of your sex tape jokes that I was seeing. So keep them coming, yep. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Title of your sex tape. <laughs> and I'm not going to be able to top that, title of your sex tape. So let's go on, <laughs> listen to a little music, and come back with our week in comedy and reality. You need to tease what we're doing with our special segment. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh you're, see, I just got so caught up. Sorry, um, I really flustered you with that. I apologize. Well, because it was <laughs> such, like, I'm going to stomp all over it here now. Okay, at the end of the show, we are talking about Wyatt Snack's Problem Areas, which is a show that completely flew under the radar for me. I haven't seen, like, anybody talking about it. Yeah, I haven't seen anyone either, and that's really sad because, hey, guess what, everyone? It's really good. It's really good. <laughs> so uh, we're going to dive in with that at the end of the show. Um, but now that I've destroyed all the momentum and stomped all over the jokes let's listen to a little music and we'll come back with our week in comedy and reality comedy and reality we're going to kick things off with the atlanta finale crabs in a barrel then noel's going to talk about the mom finale phone confetti and a wee dingle and diamond earrings and a pumpkin head then noel's talking about the last og training day and letting uh, letting me know if i should catch back up with that one they're on episode six right now we'll both chime in with thoughts on brooklyn Nine Nine's active shooter episode show me going and then we'll round things out of course with some more drag race conversation the unauthorized rusical so first up is the Atlanta finale, Crabs in a Barrel, and um, yeah, Robin Season, Robin Season, another show, by the way, that has not yet had a season three announced. Uh, yeah. Who knows if it's going to come back? But All these people are going to be really busy soon. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, right? Um, but I thought it was a really strong finale, uh, a very different kind of feeling, but yet totally um, appropriate end to Robin Season, Robin Season, mm-hmm. and uh, really you know, compelling personal day in the life drama for, yeah. for Ern and, and Alfred. So, you know, I liked, I loved how like we, after all these crazy, you know, flights of horror, <laughs> flights of yeah. fancy that we've had all season, we get, go, you know, we're reminded of the mundane and the, just the daily pressures that Ern is under and Alfred's under and everyone van and, you know, uh, Darius and, uh, and what that, what that means for them and, and for, all these, you know, other things that have happened to them over the course of the season, they still, you know, 
He's still got to get the movers. He's still got to go to the parent teacher conference. You know, um, I thought it was a really strong way to end the show. If it does end. Yeah, no, this was a really good cap to the season. Um, and on just like an adjacent note, it was like earned stress about movers and boxes and everything. It was like hitting really way too hard because I'm currently <laughs> surrounded by boxes yeah. as I'm preparing for a move. I'm actually moving tomorrow. And I was just like, oh, God. All of this is too much to handle. And then you pile on an expired passport, which is not something I have to deal with, but a pa- expired passport and an international flight. And it's just like, no, that mm-hmm. is that is too much logistical stress for me right now. But <laughs> your your point about like this being very much sort of a day in the life of Urn, and especially given that Urn sort of faded away from the narrative for a long stretch of this season. Um, so to have this come back here with basically a... The degree to which he is hustling, basically, to make sure that Alfred's career is sort of trying to get somewhere, while also still providing for Lottie and um, being there for her and for Van. Um, It was just, it was really good to have all that kind of come back, I thought. And to see how much of those connections and that kind of responsibility is both weighing on him and how he's doing the best he can to make sure that that's being taken care of. And I really, I really appreciate that, especially given how we've seen everyone else's lives over the course of Robin season. And and then in particular last week's with FUBU, um, how Alfred and Ern have one another's back and how really pivotal that whole concept is to this episode. And I really, it it was just a really sublime, very quiet, especially like the end with Chekhov's gun, basically, Mm -hmm. Uh, how quiet and really muted that was. But also, Ern finally executed a Robin season sort of move that allowed them to hopefully succeed Mm -hmm. at someone else's expense. And so it feels like a really good sort of way to end Robin season. Yeah, it was, you know... It was so well played when they're mm-hmm. in that TCA line. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and I contributed to um, just like a roundup over at EV Club about this as well. And I read about that there. Um, but Ern is absolutely stupid enough to forget that he's walking right. around with a handgun um, in his backpack as he heads to an airport. Like he is abs- he's shown himself to be absolutely stupid enough to do that. But... The way that they play that, you know, Donald Glover's performance as he opens the bag and mm-hmm. sees the gun, like, clearly that's a surprise. that We're supposed to see, take that as a surprise. But I wouldn't put it past this show and this character and this performance, and this creative team to, you know, that, that that idea was in the back of his brain the whole time. That he, mm-hmm. you know, like, that, that, there, that there was some part of him that you know, had that as maybe a, a solution because, you know, and I'm, and, and I'm going to be thinking about that in relation to the character and the show for a while. Do I think that this was entirely just, he's a dumbass, or do I think that part of him was like, well, we're going to meet up with like, cause especially after the, the line about, um, I should be headlining this. And, you mm-hmm. know, so I, you know, and that, that comfort with, different interpretations 
is something that I really appreciate about Linda and many other shows. But that nuance to the character, that potentiality, would not have occurred to me with Ern at the beginning of this season. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Yeah, I think that that degree of ambiguity is helpful, especially when a lot of this episode is, I think, relatively kind of clear cut in terms of navigating ambiguities and trying to get the truth out of people, whether it's that parent-teacher conference that they have at Lottie's school with the teacher going, no, this place is terrible, and basically equating it to a meat a, a slaughterhouse. Um, and then, then the, Ern and Lottie discussing that, or Ern talking to the um, the Orthodox Jewish man who's working at the passport office law firm thing, and the, him discussing the nature of entertainment laws and connections and the systemic reasons why this is how this works, and to the point of explaining why Alfred would much prefer having a Jewish lawyer as opposed to a black lawyer for their entertainment needs. And so navigating that kind of thing is really at the key of a lot of what's happening in this episode. So even to the point of like having to clarify Ern and Alfred's relationship at the end on the airplane, that having that moment of ambiguity as sort of the, like the climax of the episode, I think is just, it's so deft and really well executed. Yeah. I did think, I did think that last line was a bit on the nose, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the airport, like it was a little too explanatory. I, yeah, you know, it feels like it should have just been, it was in his bag or something like that, as opposed to like spelling it out in case the audience wasn't sure. You know, yeah, especially when theoretically, Alfred saw what he did. You know, right. yeah. So, but other than that, I thought that was. Yeah, that was, again, it was a really strong season, a really strong finale, and, you know, one that is definitely coming up at the end of the year, best of the year. Uh, you know, Hiro Mirai, again, crushing it as the director. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to see what he does next and um, all these performances. I, I, you know, I had missed, I had missed Van. <laughs> you know, I had missed Yeah, I had characters. two. Yeah. I miss I had missed Lottie. I kind of I had forgotten that Van was like in education until she mentioned that she interviewed at one of those schools, and I just went right. That was a thing from season one. Yep. <laughs> Till I got lost her job. Um, yeah. Any other any other elements of Atlanta you want to talk about, or shall we move on to Mom? Yeah. No. Um. Real quick about Mom. They had their um season five finale. Uh, foam confetti and weed dingle and diamond earrings and pumpkin head. And so both of these episodes deal with uh, Christy relapsing in terms of uh, her gambling addiction. Bonnie gets basically arrested and has like a $2,000 fine for just parking tickets in Nevada. And so Christy calls um, Adam to get the 2000 but the only place to get a high, 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 high deal out sort of ATM is at a casino and she immediately gambles it away. So she calls um, someone else, get another $2,000, and immediately gambles that away. And so both of these episodes are her are her, and also the rest of the support group kind of coming to grips with the fact that she's screwing up her life again to a certain degree. And it's not really clear why she's doing it. Like, she gets accepted into law school. Um, 
Um, even though some of this is definitely motivated by Steven Weber's character um, off screen getting engaged to someone else. Um, but the degree to which like this is like becoming an issue for Christie is handled re- relatively well, considering it's basically done in the course of like 40 minutes um, and is implied to be something that's going to branch off um, in season six. If they get a season six, I don't know if they've been renewed yet. Because she basically ends by getting into law school, but also by um, going to her first Gamblers Anonymous meeting. Which, by the way, they do pins instead of chips, which the show makes, the show the show explains. Yeah, I bet they learned that lesson quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but I, I like this idea of exploring another um, aspect of addiction through the show, uh, provided that they like really commit to it, even even though it will be a new group for Christy to sort of explore um, and how that goes. Um, Yvette Nicole Brown's been on for the past like three or four episodes now as Christy's new sponsor. And she's been fabulous as you would expect. As she Um, does. Yes. Yeah. No, it's Yvette Nicole Brown. She can do no wrong. And it's still mind boggling to me that she doesn't host the talking dead. And um, (laughs) yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what they do going forward. And I hope that they, really kind of hook onto it. I just find it really compelling that mom and elementary are both on the same network and both deal with these sort of things, but from admittedly very different sort of perspectives. But I really like the, how both shows depict addiction and the degree to which Christie's breakdown basically comes to my life can't be this screwed up. I can't have this many issues happening and I can't have this many addictions because what does that say about me? And it's just, it's super compelling type of stuff. And Hopefully that they can keep that going into a sixth season. Great. Um, how about Last OG? How's that doing? Should I circle right. back around? I think you should circle back around. Um, okay. Start with uh, episode three. Start with Truth Safari. Um, in this episode, Trey basically sort of politely kidnaps his two children and um, takes them around the old neighborhood and basically says, this is what it was like when I was growing up. This is what it was like when you and my mom were together. And, like, they hit up a number of places within Brooklyn, basically. And it's really good. And it's really funny. And it's also really sweet. And it's sort of like the tone that you kind of expected the show to be sort of, kind of, I think, from the premise, but not from what they do in the pilot. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of thread sort of continues as it goes forward. Um, training day, training day, um, has his son calling him because his son basically gets like kicked out of school for the day because he bought nunchucks because some guy was bullying him. So because the son doesn't want a lecture from either, um, Tiffany Haddish's character or from her current husband, he calls Trey. And so they just walk around and basically, like, again, it's sort of a, this is what this means, this is how you should be behaving sort of thing. And, like, at a, a sort of, like, father figure sort of thing. But it gets flipped back by having his daughter call um, Haddish's character's husband because she beats up the guy who was bullying her brother. Mm-hmm. And so they also end up having, like, a day out of, like, bonding over, going to get, like, her hair done. Uh, him, he gets a mani-pedi while she gets her hair done. And then they go see I Am Not Your Negro, which is playing at a repertoire theater theater um, in Brooklyn together. And so this idea of, like, fatherhood and what that kind of means comes into play again in this episode. And so I really liked where the show is sort of veering into right now. 
and so I'm I'm really eager to see more and not let this kind of like get backlogged, which is what happened. And so I'm going to try to keep up with it a little bit more week to week. But I think you should probably check it out. Um, definitely try Safari, uh, Truth Safari, and then try Training Day, um, which is this week's episode. Okay, we'll do. I uh, will report back on my findings next week. Um, Brooklyn Nine Nine had a little different episode than than usual. They did Show Me Going, which is uh, an episode wherein uh, Rosa, um, early in the episode, uh, gets called to or is goes in at an active shooter site. So mm-hmm. she's with the team of other cops because she's the car that was closest, trying to take down, um, I think it's a group of shooters. And yeah. so we follow, instead of like in these kinds of shows, normally you'd follow her on the raid instead um, or the response, I should say. Instead, we follow the rest of the squad and how they're coping with one of their own being directly in the line of fire and not being able to physically do anything. Because you can't just run down there if it's not a movie. Um, but yeah. They try and it's fun. Um, it's a serious episode. They find little moments for levity, but they mostly stick to that tone. And it's just, again, in a... <laughs> It's such a highlight of like the such a perfect example of the kind of things that Brooklyn Nine Nine does that a lot of other shows, um, in the same kind of vein, uh, don't, and, and uh, don't find the right avenue to explore. A different workplace comedy can't necessarily do something like this, but this one can. And most cop shows don't do something like this, or if they do, they go too maudlin, they go too over the top. Um, I thought they really threaded the needle with this one, and uh, yeah, it makes the cancellation all the, all the, all the harder. Though maybe it makes the sale to a new network all the easier. Maybe I think I think that's a very glass half full sort of way. That is, that's a very self delusional, you know. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree, and I think that this episode especially. Um, depicts like one of the show's strength and this is something that's been going around i forget the guy who wrote the um twitter thread about this but the this episode in particular exemplifies the whole way that this show deals with toxic masculinity and this whole like you were saying like peralta's entire arc in this episode is i have to go down there and help her and he's like ready to sign out like massive amounts of assault gear Mm -hmm. and use the whole soundboard to to get it and realizing that that is not what he needs to do in this instance thanks to holt's guidance but realizing that he he really can't be there for rosa but he can be there for everyone else and like get everyone pizza and calm down terry (laughs) and (laughs) and all this sort of stuff of like yeah no doing the cop the cop in quotation marks air quotes john mcclain sort of rush in and save the day sort of thing isn't what you're supposed to do and it's it's just going to get you hurt and it's just going to hurt other people and that's there are different ways to be supportive and to be present and that's something that the show has done really consistently across its run, especially like starting as season one progressed because Peralta was a big barrier for me as season one sort of pro- got through because he was just terrible um, and just way too broad. And the show is very subtly, especially within like the past three seasons, really nuanced Peralta into this really sensitive human being who realizes the limits of that kind of stereotypical cop behavior by seeing it modeled by other people. Include specifically Holt, but also 
Terry and literally everyone else. Yeah, except Scully and Hitchcock. Except Scully and Hitchcock, but they have their own benefits to the group mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. offer. But I still think that that kind of thing, they do a really good job of like tweaking that. And this episode is really a really good example. And yeah, it's it's a good reason not to cancel the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the um, I, th- I think my favorite part of it is the, was the soundboard. Um, though <laughs> the, the best part of the soundboard bit was the revelation of how close Holt is with the with the the guy who's in charge of all the guns. The, the sign out desk. Yes. Yeah. She's like, "Why did I just get an angry message about this?" And it's just my like, goddaughter. Very yeah. Good. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing about that more. <laughs> it was very good. It was very good. Um, less good, but still fun, was RuPaul's Drag Race and their share rusical, or I should say share, the unauthorized rusical. Um, so this week, following up Snatch Game, they made the queens sing live in a um, just a musical sequence, uh, or I guess sequence of sequences, uh, about share in her her life or really just like her personas her public personas there's nothing in the only the thing in here that i didn't know as someone who knows nothing about share oh, okay i'm curious about this the only thing i did hadn't like wasn't familiar with was the um like sharer lynn or whatever like being her actual name like that was the only, everything else was like okay just even my bare passing familiarity with share's public persona um none of this stuff was new so that uh that speaks to you know how surface it was i would have loved to get actual like information about share and like how much like why she's such a pillar of the drag community or the, the fandom and why she means so much to so so many people i don't think they even got anywhere near that i don't think they touched on that at all and that would have been so much more interesting but as far as the challenge goes it's a actually a quite a challenging thing to do yeah this is I, I go back to what we were sort of talking about. I feel like a lot of these season 10 challenges should have been all-star challenges. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because I think I think making them sing live is cool. I think making them do like a share sort of review is cool. I think merging those two things together when you have to sing as live sing as share is just cruel. It's just mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really unnecessarily difficult. Um, and... Some of these people can't sing very well, and that's fine. <laughs> but it just, it's its a really hard challenge. And I was, like, again, really surprised that this was not a sort of all-stars sort of challenge, because it's hard. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to hear Monet's Basso Profundo, man. Like, give me a nice villain aria, please. Yeah. Like, as opposed to trying to do the share voice and in the wrong range. Though, obviously... Mm-hmm. He still sounded good, um, like the sound of the best of the other, you know, queens. But yeah, it was it was a lot, and because of that, and also because of the songs, let's be honest, the songs were that great. No, um, they were not. Um, it 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 sort of lacked, but maybe because it was so challenging, I did think there was a, a more clear delineation of who did well and who didn't yes. do that great, which you know maybe they need. Um, but I also I thought the 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 runway looks. Um, I, I thought the Vixen didn't get anywhere near enough props because I really liked her look. And I, I thought that there was not an, a clear enough brief, perhaps, or just I think the, the judging for their looks 
was too much predicated by who they wanted to put into elimination. And this goes back to being, you know, the running theme I'm having of frustration this season with how much does the, like, the main challenge affect where they're going to be versus their look. And last week it seemed like it was very significant, and then this week it didn't seem like it was at all. Yeah, and I agree. Like, I do think that the Vixen's look was really good. I really liked Asia's look as well. Yep, me too. Um, And I hated how down Asia was on her look as well. I was just like... No, I, I legitimately think that I really thought I, I, I think that the Vixens was the most sort of like overall creative and crafty and sort of really tackled it. But for me, in terms of like a really kind of complete look with very much like a story as well was Asia's look. And I really liked that and how playful it was, um, though. I thought most of the looks were like fine to good, but I thought those two were like the best. And but I also like the Vixen just had just had nothing to do with share. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like no way to come back from that. Um I feel like. And this gets to your point about like what balances out. And I don't I really do feel like that that share performance is enough to cancel out like the runway look. Oh yeah. No, I agree. I I but I also think that um you know again back to the challenge itself like the Vixen like compare the Vixens task to miss crackers miss cracker just got like carried around a bunch and she had to remember mm-hmm. when to sing into the the vocoder and when not to like vixen had to do much more complicated choreography and also so like i, I just again it didn't seem like it was very even yeah no that i agree with you i do think it was time for the vixen and um i thought this was her best lip sync mm-hmm. um by far yeah but Asia, I do think Asia won. But that also is, you know, that's in the edit. If the camera, like, lingered on Vixen, maybe I would think Vixen deserved the win. But um, I thought it was pretty even. But I wasn't surprised when, when Vixen went went home. I will say I loved the um, little scene we got, the little, like, conversation with Asia and the Vixen. And it just really emphasized, like, I was impressed that Vixen allowed herself to be as open and vulnerable as we saw her like i felt like i could actually see her in a way that like in that conversation in a way that i haven't all season um so that was really cool and then also the mini challenge was awesome this is gonna be asia o'hara's drag race i'm gonna own this building it's just like, <laughs> that was so good i i you can tell rue just felt really terrible <laughs> And I really, I really enjoyed that. But yes, that mini challenge was just fabulous across the board. But then the accidental actual slap was just like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Aquarius, I was born on blah blah blah, yeah, nineteen ninety six. <laughs> it was just fabulous. As someone who uh, lived in in grad school, one of my roommates. Uh, we called him 90s child because he was born in 1990 and that made all of us feel ancient. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so yes, I thought that was particularly, you know, entertaining to me. Uh, yeah. So, like I said, this we've said it all season and I, like at least I know I have and I, I think we're pretty much on the same page with this. But these longer run times, 90 minute episodes and actually getting mini challenges and actually getting time to really have these longer, more significant challenges and then really see the runway. Like the show is so much better off. You know, I was a little concerned when we get to fewer queens. Is it going to yes. be too long? But so far they've managed it well. 
Yeah, and I, I have the, I had that question as well as we sort of entered like this tail end of things. Um, especially given the fact that it's just like, oh, right, Cameron doesn't have anywhere to hide now. <laughs> Not only does she have to do talking head segments, but she has to do a sneak off segment with Eureka. Um, and so there's like there's no place for her to hide within like every uh, everyone else's desire to get airtime, basically. Um, though this also gets to like one of the things I noticed about this episode is that it felt a lot more reality TV than previous episodes have had in that the talking head sections are all about this is what I'm about to do. This is what I did. And then we watch them do it. And I just went, this is very much of like a reality day in the life sort of thing that we're doing here. And I don't know why this is being included in the editing, but it was a weird sort of like stylistic sort of talking head tick that just came up in this episode. And it was very weird. Yeah. Hopefully we'll, be back to the usual approach next week. Yeah. Um, I would guess maybe that's because of just like the, the drama with, yeah, you know, I think so too. With Vixen yeah. and, uh, uh, Aquar- no, sorry, Vixen and Eureka. Um, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see if well, they start. The Vixen and everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Um, any other thoughts on Drag Race? Or if not, what wins your week in comedy and reality? Um, well, I do want to give a little bit of attention to Full Frontal with Samantha B. They devoted a really good segment um, to dealing with um, New York's uh, Attorney General Schneiderman, who they've who they had featured on the show and who has been very vocal in his uh, like he's the one who was like really pushed for the prosecution of Weinstein. And then hey, it turns out that he's really horrible and gross and abused women and said really cruel things to women, including asking one to be his brown slave. And that's that's not great. Nope. Or nope, it's not good that's at all. So really bad. Yeah. B basically tore into him as well, especially because again, the, they had had him on the show for a large sit down segment and just B's frustration with that, especially because she was giving him this platform, was palatable throughout the entire episode. And so I really appreciated this episode in particular for their willingness to do this and also like just to like go no sorry you you've 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 pissed us off and used us in a way by not disclosing this sort of thing so i really appreciated that um but i think my week is uh brooklyn 99 or atlanta atlanta was a really good drama this week mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but so was brooklyn 99 um <laughs> but um i think i'll give it to brooklyn 99 this week uh what about you what stood out for you this week in comedy well, first off, uh, shout out to Bob's Burgers and um, Gene watching Bake Off on someone's laptop <laughs> and talking uh, about the old guy who made a Swiss roll that that made him feel something for once in his life or whatever it was. Um, that was just a little perfect snapshot of what it is to watch Bake Off. So, um, yeah. yes, thank you, Bob's, for that. But no, I'm giving it to Atlanta. Um, shout mm-hmm. out to uh brooklyn 99 and uh you know i always just have so much fun with drag race but but no it, it, it's definitely atlanta for me this week uh, now we'll take a break listen to lapis song and come back with our week in genre and drama it all became so lovely those blue skies above me to learn to smile so many colors 
that was uh, a distant shore or the distant shore um lapis's song from from steven universe this week we are gonna have a lot to say about that, I'm sure. But first off, we're going to talk about Vita, which had its premiere, episode one. Um, then we have Sweet Bitter, which had its premiere, Salt. I'm going to talk briefly about The American's Harvest before we go on to Killing Eve. I have a thing about bathrooms. I caught up with Timeless, so the day Reagan was shot, I want to give a little thoughts on that before their finale this weekend. And then um, we'll talk Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the one who will save us all, and round things out, of course, with Steven Universe, Can't Go Back, and A Single Pale Rose. First up is Vita, and this is a half-hour drama that is in English and Spanish, and um, it's gotten a lot of really positive buzz uh, from critics who've seen screeners. I have not seen screeners, and so I was sort of like, okay, with this one. Like, it's fine, but it didn't wow me or anything. I'm I'm guessing that's going to come in later episodes, so I'm going to stick with it so far. But, like, I thought this was a fine premiere I like the half-hour format, um, but it just also just kind of felt like it ended to me. So um, I'm not as over the moon with this one as I was hoping I would be based on early buzz. What, what did you think of this premiere? Um, so the other thing we should note that this and Sweet Bitter are both on stars. Yes. Um, so I will also I will not be able to keep up with these because I'm getting rid of stars when I move, which makes me a little sad because I liked Vita a lot. Um, even though the premiere is very, very, very premise driven. And I think that's one of the big sort of stumblings is that this is a very premise driven pilot of, all right, a woman who's basically left her neighborhood that is on the verge of gentrification comes back after her mother dies and basically has to sort of like deal with that sort of thing. So sort of a very rote sort of premise, but I think that the difference of it being focused on, uh, to, um, Latinx sisters, um, plus their mother's ex wife, (laughs) um, who that neither of them figured that out immediately was a little weird to me, but sure. Um, (laughs) And then, like, dealing with the fact that, again, the neighborhood's on the verge of gentrification and, like, what this family sort of means and how they can keep this bar that their mother was basically keeping afloat, if they can keep it afloat, and should they keep it afloat, is, I think, I, I I like all the ideas that were presented within this, but it's just, like you said, it's very... It's it's fine as like a pro- premise pilot goes, um, but I think that there's a lot of potential for really interesting sort of neighborhood conflict and interpersonal conflict within this neighborhood and what the sister from Chicago, who's been living in I think Chicago, um, wants to do versus like staying true to the neighborhood and that kind of a thing and whether or not she comes around to that. I think again will be really interesting. I think there's a really good story about gentrification, like sort of on the cusp here. Um, and whether or not that comes through will be really interesting to see. Um, but you will have to tell me if that comes through. Yeah. <laughs> um, or I'll just have to, excuse me, wait until this like hits DVD or something. Or when they do their like free month trial thing, free week right. trial thing that they do every now and again. Yeah, basically is when I will catch up on Vita. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll be curious to see what what continues to happen there. Yeah. And there's that little touch of magical realism at the yes. end, which, of course, I always enjoy. So, yeah. We'll see what yeah, happens. Yeah, magical realism is the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Let's move on to Sweet Bitter 
And oh, uh, can we not move on to sweet butter? Well, I was like, I couldn't transition with magical. I couldn't tra- transition with realism. I couldn't transition with magical realism. But we could transition with gentrification. We could. Boy, howdy. There you go. So this is a show also on Stars about a young woman who decides to go to New York because. You know how you always wanted to go to New York? That's apparently all we need to know about her motivations. Um, And she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. But, you know, she finds herself at this restaurant. There's no reason for her to be hired. But, you know, there's just something about her. So the owner does. And it's just, oh, God, it's such a, like, it's such a paint-by-numbers pilot for this kind of a show like if you told me the premise and you said it's not very good i could have spelled out everything that happens in this in this episode it's really i was hoping this would be interesting and good have something to say about food culture or or food itself or anything um and instead it's just a lot of platitudes that are very familiar to anyone who's watched any number of chefs talking about their jobs like We've seen all these stories before just from chefs talking on Top Chef or on Ugly Delicious, way more interesting on Ugly Delicious or Chef's Table or like nothing here is new or original. Yeah. And so this is it takes place in 2006. It's based on a woman's memoirs of breaking into the culinary world in much the same way. Stephanie Dandler. Yeah, who's also an executive producer and writer on it, um, but she, she she manages to find an apartment with a roommate, um, and then get a job at this sort of like fairly nice, well-to-do sort of um, WD forty sort of esque restaurant. Um, but there's there's nothing here in this interesting. Sh- the episode ends with her getting seduced basically by salt. Um, the saltiness and what that conjures up of an oyster and what that conjures up in her brain. And it's just like, I spent most of the episode being really worried about her dad that she basically abandons and we know Mm -hmm. nothing about him. And I'm just like, he should be really worried and you should feel really bad that you basically just set the table for breakfast and left a note Mm -hmm. and then sold that car. (laughs) Um, it, It was just, there's nothing really compelling or interesting about this. It's very... Fish out of water, sort of late girl from the Midwest, like going to New York to make it big, except she doesn't know what she wants to make it big at. And she's also like, doesn't read books or anything. And it's just like, this isn't interesting at all. And I was, and it feels like it, it feels like the show thinks it's much more interesting and much more profound and much more compelling than it is. Except for the fact that, like you said, we've seen this a gazillion times, or we've heard these sort of stories told a gazillion times that the fact that they can't find anything new to depict or say is not a good thing. And it's, I think like the sort of the best way to sort of sum up basically salt is that at some point, um, the main character whose name is Tess gets asked what she knows about wine. And she goes, the basics. And that's basically what this show is, is the basics of an idea of a show about someone who discovers the world of New York food in two th- in 2006. Yeah, I have increasingly less patience for shows that smack of entitlement. Yeah. And, and by that I mean you should like and be interested in our main character because 
because she's she's pretty and young and and white and look at how fragile she looks but there's an inner core there like make your character interesting if you can't make your main character interesting or in, like i would never have guessed her name was tess because there was no reason for me to care or know what her name was in this first episode um so it, it like give me a reason to care and if you can't be bothered to give me even one reason to care about one character or one plot point or one anything in your pilot I'm not coming back. So I'm not coming back to this one. Yeah, and there's no reason to, even down to like the fact that the chef who runs up the restaurant is mysterious. She's yeah. like, no, he's not. He's a he's a white guy working in New York in 2006 and running a restaurant. We know exactly what it is because we've watched <laughs> we we yeah. watched yeah. Chef's Table and we know how this story goes. He goes off to Bali. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Okay, let's move on. We've talked too long about Sweet Bitter. The Americans had another amazing episode. And, like, Noel, I know this is not your show. I'm not going to try to tell you you should watch it. Because you shouldn't. Because it's not for you. But we are, like, the inevitable pull to, you know, CIA neighbor and undercover best friend Russians like the conflict that is has to come like it's stand about to find out finally (laughs) we're dragging our feet so much and he does he this week he starts like keying into certain things and (laughs) at um, long last (laughs) well it's just because they both take off on Thanksgiving Mm-hmm. Um, when the kid came in, you know, Henry came in from out of town from, from school to be there and they did like, which is very out of, you know, out of, out of the norm. And, and so like, so it just, it just pings a couple things. So he goes and he searches their house. And so like, you're waiting for him to find, because only a few episodes left, you're waiting for him to find the wigs or a book or anything, but then he doesn't, but then he's searching the garage, which is a direct callback to the pilot when you thought, when they were, when Philip was in his garage and you thought, is he going right. to have to kill? Like, Remember that scene. Exactly. Right. Oh my God. It was so good. That scene and this scene, it's just like, it's so intense and you know, it, the inevitability is there, but you know, and it's very interesting for me to watch in contrast and comparison to how Breaking Bad handled uh, Hank finding out, right? And like this is, I, I think they, I get the sense that the writers are aware of that connection. Yeah, like, sure. There's such a similar idea. It's hard and not so to be. recent. Yeah, yeah, because um, it's not an unusual like plot point in a show like this in general, but like especially with being such a prominent show so recently, like. It feels like they're aware of that, and and they're being very specific to the characters here. But like, it's just it's it's gonna be bad when that it's gonna it's gonna be bad. But the process of getting there is so compelling. Um, they're just they're crushing it. Like, Philip, you should you shouldn't have gone in for the hug. The hug was was like too far. It was just like a little bit too far, because um, you know, uh, Stan you know, pull, pushes him on, like, well, what's going on? It seems like this is not normal. Like, you've been really stressed out, and, like, there's something else going on, and why aren't you talking to me? So he opens up about the business failing, and and then when he is leaving, then then he goes, he, he gives him a hug, and it's just a little bit off, you know? Um, and, 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 because it's like, yeah, this is true, but this is also just, like, there's, there's still something else, and Stan is a good enough, you know, CIA guy. 
um, even if he's been off of of that like the, the that department for years now. He's to to know that like just like oh, I shouldn't shouldn't have gone shouldn't have gone for the hug. It was just a, like <sighs> okay. Anyways, I I'm just gonna ramble, so I we should move on. But it's real good. Also, real good is Killing Eve. I have a thing about bathrooms. Can so I offer you some now. shepherd's pie? <laughs> oh, God. So intense. So terrifying. Uh, I thought they actually handled the thing I was worried about at the end of last week yeah. pretty well, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, terrifying and so well done. And like, oh, poor dick swab. I know. I know. I, I almost feel bad. I almost feel bad. I um, would feel more bad, um, <laughs> e- um, except that one of the guys guarding him got killed. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah, this episode, again, is just still, like, the show's just so good. And it's so perfectly calibrated. Um, the dryness of, like, that humor of, <sighs> I know exactly what he needs. I don't think any of you should see this. And immediately cut mm-hmm. to her cuddling dick swab Mm -hmm. to get him to like finally start talking and the whole forgiveness sort of angle of like how fragile this dumbass is Mm -hmm. and so again like this is a really good sort of humor moment and then we get horrifying sort of humor when Villanelle breaks into the apartment basically and like drowns like attempts to calm eve down by like running Flashing cold, water on her. Cold, like pouring cold water from the tap on her in the tub and all this sort of stuff and then yeah. that like she's just soaking wet for the rest of the like that sequence and she's just mm-hmm. like this is all a really funny but b also all very incredibly horrifying mm-hmm. and like you said the whole kitchen scene is like edited and acted to a hilt and it's incredibly tense and it's really good and it's really delightful just to watch them finally get like some interplay um between one another like face to face sitting down and how really delightful that goes with eve going no this is all bullshit stop trying to con me because i Mm -hmm. see through this i have your record right here in front of me yeah and but then like that 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 escalates into Villanelle going. So what number are you? <laughs> <laughs> to the guy who handles all her stuff and just all this sort of stuff is like getting really ratcheted up in this episode. And I'm very excited about it. It's really good. It's really it's really well acted. And Brian Fuller tweeted a scene from the kitchen thing, kitchen sequence mm-hmm. going. I, I know you, I cannot tell you how hard I ship these two in the tweet. And <laughs> everyone on the internet probably went, no, Brian, you don't have to tell us. We already know you did we three seasons channel. of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, no, it's That's really funny. good. And I'm very excited. We've only got like two or three episodes left. And mm-hmm. it's very stressful, especially I know that I have access to them. But I haven't watched them because I don't want to like get the watch head. them. I don't want to get ahead. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Sandra O, oh, when she leaves and the husband comes back with, mm-hmm. with Dom, we didn't talk about this in the, in the first episode, but like, I would have had, like, it's very writerly, but, you know, it's a cheat, but I would have been very upset if Dom had been killed in the first episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that kind of, it, it would have still watched, but it's like, that determined my relationship with the show, the yeah. decision to not kill Dom, even though they should have killed Dom if they were being more honest, but 
still, I was like, good, okay, I can invest in this because they're not going to be too mean to me. And that has really held true since then. And, man, watching that, watching Sandra Oh get to do this stuff is just so exciting. It is. So wonderful. And the whole cast is terrific, but, like, that's what I keep coming back to because we've known she had this in her always because she's so brilliant, but to actually get to see her do it is so exciting it's, it's the best deployment of her i can think of ever so far. ever yeah yeah okay well let's move on uh to a very different show and that's timeless <laughs> the day reagan was shot and this i i caught up with timeless for tv party mm-hmm. to talk about it over there and then that got rescheduled because uh, of the fabulous 90 minute long conversation we had with uh drag queen suddenly seymour about snatch game which everyone go listen to it it is fabulous don't it's really fun and informative and i you know what i think already but they actually had a drag queen who you know knows about drag because she's a drag queen um who is a fabulous guest talking about all that good stuff so because of that the timeless thing got bumped but i had still caught up with timeless all of season two and um, so I watched this week's episode. Next week is a two-part finale. They put the screeners up. So I was like, okay, why don't I finish it up? And before this episode, I was like, eh, better than season one. I watched a few episodes in season one. And even my love for Abigail Spencer uh, wasn't enough to get yeah, me to, to really stick with it. Um, season two did, you know, there's some twists at the end of season one that really shook things up. And season two is uh, certainly stronger than season one. But... Um, there was some of the writing was just, was just bad, Noel. It's just bad. Uh, but there were a few episodes that were much better. And then this week's episode is a you know they go back to the day Reagan is shot, and it's actually not about Reagan at all. It's about uh Christopher, their boss. But you know we meet her. You know she was on, she was like working that day, and the the bad guys are trying to to disrupt her life at the time she is in the closet and considering marry you know an arranged marriage um at which point she would likely not have gone to quantico and become an fbi agent met her wife married a wife had two kids um so so watching the the show really dive in with that character let us know christopher so much better and in a much more interesting compelling way adding that layer to theoretically their relationship all along though that's not how the show does time travel but still it was a really fun episode and it was really well done there was some you know the 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 parts of the show that aren't as interesting were backgrounded those parts of the show that are more compelling were foregrounded yay right that's a good way to get you to like a show i watched the the two-part finale and i won't say anything spoilery i will just say y'all it's good i really hope it gets renewed because there's some there's some very good stuff and all the time those people are going to lose their minds if the show doesn't get renewed because it ends Again. on a cliffhanger. So, um, well, not a cliffhanger. It ends with a thing. So it ends in a way that sets up a very exciting and fun um, premiere or season three. So we'll see what happens with it. But I was very surprised to see myself turn around pretty substantially in the last few episodes of Timeless. Um, so well done, Time Team. I think that's what they call them, right? They're the Time Team? I think so. Um, like you, I checked out pretty early into season one and was not compelled to come back um, for yeah. season two. So, Yeah. Anyways, 
I, I had fun, and I know at least a few people in real life who will be very excited that I'm, I'm that I'm on board now. So yay, <laughs> yay! Um, Agents of Shield had the the one who will save us all, and Adrian uh, Pazdar finally. Uh, you know, much more prominent this season. Uh, becomes graviton, and it's apparently a comics thing. And yeah, uh, what did you think of this episode? So mostly, like the thing that I wanted to like kind of discuss was Pastor, um, and the evolution of Talbot, and also graviton. Um, graviton's like this soup as his powers allow him to be as someone who can control basically gravity and like the force of mass and that kind of thing. Um, is a massively overpowered character in the comics, as you might expect, and he's massively overpowered here as well. And that's sort of the point, and, like, that degree of power, basically, that character's, like, super-duper crazy pants, but not, like, in a Joker super-duper crazy pants, just in a, um, I am the most powerful being on the universe sort of crazy pants, and that, Passer does a really nice job of, like, coming through with that here, I think. But the big thing that I really liked about this and was really sort of like tickled by a lot of this and was basically Pastar's sort of dual presence on this, but also on Supergirl, in which on Supergirl he's supposed to be playing like this, um, and the show has completely forgotten that this character exists now, um, uh, sort of like Trumpian, Trump-influenced sort of business guy, um... And he does, like, a bunch of, like, random sort of, like, softball sort of Trump acknowledgement type things um, on Supergirl. And so, but he's been playing Talbot on S.H.I.E.L.D. for years now um, as the guy who's a semi-antagonist, semi, semi, semi semi-ally to S.H.I.E.L.D. and that kind of thing. But what's really interesting, I think, here is that S.H.I.E.L.D. deploys him in exactly the same manner that Supergirl wants to sort of deploy him. Because one of the big refrains that Talbot has as he's going through this and has been influenced by the Graviton is, I can fix this. And it's just like, oh god, they're just... And he says it over and over again. I didn't really pick up on it until like the fourth time he says it. And he's just like, oh... He's really saying I alone can fix this. And he's got the same amount of like self-ego and self-absorption and just sheer messiah sort of a th- that he, he legitimately thinks that all he needs is himself. And starts like wiping out allies, starts making really bad deals. Um, and he becomes this like really... He becomes this Trump's. He becomes this literal sort of Trump surrogate within the confines of this character that's evolved a lot, and while still drawing on elements of this character from the comics as well. And it's just, it's really good. Pastor leans really hard into it, and I think the show does a really good job of not overplaying that really, or to like not make it as apparent as maybe like something like Supergirl did when they had him playing this sort of vibe before. And it's just, it's really good. It's sort of like the thing that that kind of science fiction and fantasy extrapolation does really well. And then to just embed it within this popular character from the comics slash this popular character from this show, it's just really nicely done, I think. Um, even if a lot of what the show overall is doing isn't really my bag anymore. Um, in terms of like the overwhelming darkness, I really feel like that Mac, if the show comes back, should just leave because he has no business being with these people anymore. 
Um, but I really like, I just wanted to just, like talk at you, I guess, a little bit about the past star's performance and just how much the performance and the writing for that really clicked in for me, I think. And then I really could have done without the Thanos um, tie-in for the Infinity War. But Isn't that cute? They're trying to cute. pretend this is happening at the same time. It's, like, it's super it's not cute. even a little bit. Like, y- you've convinced, like, five people who watch that this is happening at the same time. Yeah. No one else believes you. Yeah, and I mean, I think my one of my favorite jokes about, like, Infinity War and also how kind of sprawling the Marvel Universe has com- become is the fact that no doubt the teens on the runaways were getting text messages and going, like, you think something weird is happening in, happening in New York right now? And then half of them just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they... they... There's many reasons that that is like they kind of locked themselves into that when they did the amazing adjustment to the show with um, Winter Soldier, which worked great for the show. But here doesn't work at all. So uh, the other thing that does not work for me in this is the attempts to pivot the tone for yeah. Talbot. Like and like they're doing still doing like the jokey asides with Coulson. And then like then literally the next breath is doing the psycho stuff like they they didn't thread that for me. They like didn't didn't work, and um, I didn't buy Coulson joking around. I didn't feel like Coulson was pretending to joke around to keep Talbot happy. Like that, none of that really came together for me. So yeah, it was a uh, less satisfying than I would have liked. But but I certainly have enjoyed Prasler's performance, and he uh, he's always been an asset to the show. And pretty much any show I've seen him on. He's he's always very good. Yeah, uh, going he back is. to profit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, he is, and I, one of the things I do enjoy about this is also that like he's he voiced Iron Man for a very long time, and like a lot of the animated properties for Marvel. That so, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, right, because it's perfect. He's perfect for that. Um, so yeah, he's just he's he's been a really good presence for Marvel television overall. I think. Um, yeah. You want to talk about Steven Universe? Let's talk about Steven Universe. Uh, so first, let's talk about Can't Go Back. Yeah. And, and we then should... we'll do everything else. So um, I knew all I knew about this episode. Um, oh, and I was doing the TV God's work over on TV Party last week, Noel. Guess what? What? They're going to do a, um, a a thing like Make You watch a over there for Steven mm-hmm. Universe. So Allison's going to watch Steven Universe. Allison hasn't watched Steven Universe? She hasn't watched Steven Universe. She doesn't like animated shows. But I'm, she's going to. I'm and I have to right figure now. out exactly <laughs> which episodes to like. Because I know like it takes a while to get going. You know, like so I have to plan how I'm going to get them all on board with this show. But I'm very excited. I'm angry this tweeting is- at her right now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, I all I knew about this episode was that it was a Ronaldo episode, something about the moon. I was like, oh, is it going to be, is this Ronaldo? So it could just be a comedy one, which I always tend to enjoy those episodes. Or is it going to be like the the moon base? And then they, they went a completely different way. I had no idea this was a Lapis episode. I thought it was lovely. I loved the visualization of her like kind of spying on everyone and then deciding that she wasn't spying because that makes her feel bad if you phrase it that way. Um, but I love the animation of that. And then her, we finally get our first Lapis song and I thought it was lovely. I really liked this episode. And, and the bittersweet ending I think was like 
so appropriate for the character and so appropriate for trauma. I like that this is not a show that has every single character embrace and process and move through their trauma and overcome their trauma. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to get there. Uh, but at this point, you know, so far, pretty much all the main characters have enough um, that they can be on the team. Um, but Lapis still hasn't. And I, I love that the show doesn't judge her for that because like Steven doesn't. So the show doesn't and Steven never would. And that's why we love Steven universe. The show. Any thoughts on can't go back. No kid. I don't have any thoughts on can't go back featuring my favorite crystal gem. No, I don't have any (laughs) thoughts about this. Is she a crystal gem or is she just a gem? My favorite gem, let's say Um, my dear, sweet, good, sad lapis. Love mm-hmm. you so much. Um, no, th- for all the reasons you just enumerated, this episode's very, very good. Um, the aesthetics, uh, again, of like sort of the spy orb are really good. And I like how that episode, in both how it depicts Stephen and Lapis during those moments, but also how it sort of deals with Stephen's dream a little bit at the end, um, really use shadows again. Um, the show's deployment of shadows, um, both in sort of this dreamlike but also in this flashback sort of motif has been really good and again influenced really heavily from a couple of different animes um and i really i really like those sort of moments um because lapis for so long has basically been living a life of a shadow of like she's been trapped in a mirror and then she's just like trying to get by and never really being able to fully move on and it embrace a life that she's carved out for herself which i mean we talked about when she raised the barn um and so the degree to which is that she almost feels ready to do that and then steven's dream and his inability to articulate what the dream is um sends her off because it's she really she just hasn't dealt with it and she she doesn't know how and she's also like frankly not willing to and that's like you said, it's just really powerful and really important to have that depicted and for the show to keep coming back to that idea, um, I think is, it's really meaningful, even though as I, I don't remember if we discussed this on mic or off mic about how the kids aren't watching Steven Universe anymore, um, that I, I still think that that's really important that that's being shown um, at, ostensibly to a child kid yeah. teen in air quotes yeah. child's entertainment yeah child's yeah. program children's programming yeah. um so yeah and the song is really really good and really moving and i i wish we had gotten a lapis song sooner mm-hmm. um but i i also do feel like that i mean she has to come back right she, she has to come back. well we're gonna talk about this with single pale rose it, yeah. but what level of endgame are we entering yeah know? yeah uh, and like God, we have to it could end- be like supreme endgame or this could be like a whole new chap like we don't know yet so yeah yeah we're gonna give a massive spoiler warning before we talk yeah about it. yeah any no. other thoughts on can't go back no i just thought i need to go back and watch it again because while i went back and watched a single pale rose again which i ultimately don't think was necessary because it's very good but i got it all i should have mm-hmm. watched can't go back again because i don't think i got all of it that i wanted to get out of it so i'm gonna do that after we get that off but yeah. yeah, so big spoiler alert. We're going to talk about Single Pale Rose. And- Allison, if you're listening, stop. <laughs> Turn off the podcatching device and skip ahead or something. But don't you dare listen to this. Anyone who might catch up on Steven Universe, don't you dare listen to this because it's like 
universe shaking Steven universe shaking reveal in this episode as well as yeah. just like a really good episode but yes you've been saying for a while noel that you wanted a pearl episode it's been too long since we had a pearl yes and i got one and boy howdy <laughs> we got a freaking pearl episode um so yes we have the big massive reveal but even aside from that, I thought this was an amazing episode and so in character and so funny and so touching and so like revealing about the character, um, revealing to the like the whole history of the show where like every time we've seen Pearl like put her hands to her mouth and like that's probably a time when she wanted to tell Steven what he finds out in this episode but she wasn't able to. Um, and so that makes you just want to rewatch the whole thing all over again. You which know, I mean, you and I have discussed doing, so. Yeah, which we have, because we <laughs> need to do that as a podcast sometime. We really do need to do that. Um, but, okay, so Pink Diamond faked her death yes. and assumed the identity of Rose Quartz. Now, we don't know whether there was a Rose Quartz previously that she took the identity of or because obviously that's a type of gem if it was not a type of gem then that we would have heard about that by now but clearly it's a rare but actual type of gem um so did she adopt this persona the entire time or did she assume the position of someone else who got shattered or we don't know any of that stuff but we know that pink that rose is pink and therefore steven is pink and this (sighs) I, I do think it's very clear from how Pink slash Rose is talking about the chain of what her, what basically what the departure of the Diamond Authority from Earth would mean is that Pink was leading this revolution. And in the guise of Rose Quartz. And so, like, her excitement over the fact that status would not be a thing anymore is not a, a, for once, does not feel like a put-on. It's very weird in that, even though this is still very much an episode in which Rose is still being depicted to us via someone else's recollections of her, that this is the one time that I actually legitimately feel like I'm seeing Rose. Um, Because, like... I've kind of long maintained the fact that Rose is a dirty liar. <laughs> yeah. Well, she she's this episode she's and being incredibly selfish. Yes. She's yeah, she's there's lots of negative things about what she's doing in this episode and her treatment of of Pearl absolutely. We'll we'll get into it, but yeah, yeah. please continue. And so like this is the first time I really kind of legitimately feel like we're seeing Rose. And that is why I sort of like I buy that there's not a particular sort of whatchamacallit like she didn't assume this identity from someone else i don't feel like because she also has the sword um and calls it i'm pretty sure like her sword um so i don't think that that's a put on i legitimately do think like pink diamond either had an awakening or was just legitimately sort of like Eh, I don't want to do this game anymore, which kind of feels way more likely than happening awakening to me of how we've learned about pink diamond through Steven's dreams. The idea that she just kind of got tired of running a colony and got tired of this particular way of running a colony 
feels kind of likely to me. Um, but yeah, so I don't feel like it was a put on at all. Um, I hope it's not a put on. We don't, I mean, like you said, we're not entirely sure. It doesn't feel like one though. Yeah. It's, you know, like, it's easy for me. Like immediately I was thinking about all the, the things that this, the implications for this for Rose and for Steven. But then I immediately was hit by like, which I think is very interesting. And I think there's like, some people had very positive, some people have very negative reactions to this. Um, and I'm sort of like, okay, let's sh- go team. Let's figure it out. You know, like show me the next thing. But the one thing I really am troubled by about this is the way it recontextualizes Rose and Pearl's relationship as one that never escaped servant yeah. and subordinate, subordinate, mm-hmm. subordinate. Um, and just it master makes, and subordinate, commander and subordinate. Yeah, it makes Pearl so much sadder and so much more tra- like to a, like an oppressive extent for me yeah um and like the idea that that she and rose had any sort of equal relationship at any point is gone yes and that is like it just makes the it, it just it's it's really like it hurts my heart to think that this was all one-sided forever and uh, I just don't want that for Pearl, you know, that what a, what a depressing and sad reveal that they don't really focus on because it's more on the relief of her relief of being able to be like share this with with Stephen um, and finally not having to keep that secret, the burden of that, you know, the weight of that secret. But man, that's rough. Well, I, 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 I do think that it's there to a certain degree and that we sp- like the idea of like an emotional mess, that first level of an emotional mess is Pearl crying about Greg and the degree to which like even over a course of like thousands of years, their relationship, like you said, never really transcended the social strata that ostensibly they were trying to break down. Well, we don't even know that they had any level of relationship at all. Yeah. Any re- any level of relationship aside from servant and friend and person madly in love with her superior, mm-hmm. which almost like borderline feels built into the pearl sort of mm-hmm. yeah like, yeah the programming like programming that sort of baked inness of what a pearl is supposed to do. Did she ever overcome her programming and find her own identity? Because we don't know that she did. She just put this new command or this new like set of principles and priorities from Rose from Pink on top of her original factory setting. Yeah. Well, mine setting or however pearls are. However made. it works. <laughs> yeah. Clam setting? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Gem setting. But like but you see what I mean? Like it's yeah, I do. It's just it it completely rewrites her history as which was one of empowerment identity and self-actualization and uh taking ownership over one's you know take uh, taking autonomy after having been a slave for thousands of years and it removes that agency from her and it's it's again it's really rough yeah it it really is and like i mean lapis is like my favorite non-crystal gem i think is fair and then with pearl being my favorite like it's 
it does indeed like really recontextualize everything like you said and the the degree to which the show is going to engage with that i think is arguably sort of minimal because the the teaser for when these episodes come back later in the summer are basically just like Ruby and Sapphire are not happy. <laughs> <laughs> They're on different pages about this, yeah. Um, yeah. And understandably so, because again, Rose lies. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. And I think that that's sort of like, again, it gets back to what the show's been doing really steadily since like season three or four, because these the seasons run together for me to a certain degree. That's really difficult. But the steady problematization of Rose. Um, and this feels like, when we're talking about, like, Endgame or New Chapter, this is at the very least a new chapter of everyone learning the thing and how this is going to impact and not shatter them in a gem sense, but shatter them in a psychological sort of, we thought we were carrying on this legacy and wait, we were working for a diamond all along. Oh, well, that's just lovely. Um, and yeah, so the degree to which the, I think the show will engage in Pearl's potential pain about that or exploration about that, I think is arguably sort of minimal. Um, which makes me a little bit sad because we've had the it's over, isn't it? And I think that's sort of like where the show was ready to stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And again, it's just that it's it's nothing has changed for Pearl. Yeah, right. It's just our understanding of Pearl is completely shaken. So why like, she wouldn't need to have more ex- exploration and examination because mm-hmm. she's known this the whole time. It's that's just fair. our yeah. understanding of her is so very completely just rewritten by this um we'll see and and i don't think it really necessarily affects amethyst as much the one that's huge gonna be huge for is gonna be garnet um so i'm very excited to see what that means and what comes you know from that and then certainly steven this could maybe explain how she was able to transubstantiate and make a human (laughs) a part human in steven um so we'll you know we'll we'll see, but uh, no, I thought I thought the episode itself. Let's talk about that a bit. Um, I loved the layers of pearl. I loved the no. Let's stay on the top. Let's keep everything Surface. alphabetized. I'm very good at compartmentalizing, and it's just like oh boy, yeah. oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the different uh, the different looks for pearl as she gets younger were interesting, and I loved seeing that glimpse of the temple like in its full glory. Um, and then just the, the level, like the, the base level we get down to, um, yeah, it's really interesting. And really it is like, it's, I agree with you that we get our clearest picture of Rose yet in that scene, but it's also just, it, she got so many people killed. She got yes. so many gems shattered mm-hmm. and because she was willing to tell herself that her sisters would just like. Leave. not react yeah when when one of the like someone like <laughs> if you make the god bleed right so somebody kills their sister you don't want the rest of the universe and the empire getting ideas so you got to make sure that you destroy the entire but like they had an entire rebellion and three of them survived yeah. four if you count four. bismuth yeah but and yeah business is gonna be pissed too <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to be a good thing if no. they ever tell her. <laughs> and they may not. 
Okay, any other things you want to dive into? Um, can we talk about how Pearl apparently has a bunch of phone numbers? Because I know, right? <laughs> um, I have you a hard, go, girl. I have a hard time believing that Pearl gets flustered by things now, um, given all the phone numbers she has. <laughs> well, and we don't know how old those are. Yeah, that's which, true. Which various points in her existence, and she she's had that because I the last time we saw her with the phone was when she got the the girl with the pink hair's number. Yeah. But then she said she hasn't used it in since months. Then. So yeah, since then. So like, imagine she hasn't gotten more numbers since then, or used it to contact Cutie with the pink hair. So, uh, but no, I I very much appreciated that detail. <gasps> Can we also discuss how Pearl is very pri- has so much pride in the fact that she does indeed have a case for her phone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was and just Ameth is like, oh god, okay, um, you just just don't move, just stay there, and then yep, that was fun, that was fun. I also loved the ending, just like the and just the reactions of both Garnet and Amethyst, and like, oh man, that was it was it was there was some strong Amethyst content, is what I'm saying. There was, yeah, there really was, um. Yeah, it's just it was a very good episode overall. Um Yeah. Ugh, Drats, now I want to go back and rewatch this one again. Thanks, yeah. Kate. Well, it's real good. <laughs> it it's is real more good. Thanks, Rebecca Sugar and all of them. And uh props to the people who've been really committed to the Rose is Pink theory all along. And yeah. apparently this is something they had they knew about before they even started the show. It was like early show Bible kind of information. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. You don't decide something this huge, like, on a lark, you know, partway through. This is something, if you decide it's got to, like, you need a lot of prep either way and decide if it really works. So I wasn't surprised to hear that they had been, you know, in the Bible all along. Um, yeah, and I just, oh, I just can't. Bible. I'm, all right. <laughs> now, the last question I have for you. Is this building towards Endgame? Like, one more season? Or is this pivot new show now for like in who know like five more seasons what do you think i think it's probably end game um yeah that's what i, I feel too i don't think that cartoon network wants the show much longer if i'm being honest um given the fact that adventure time's ending and that steven universe is much more in line with adventure time than it is with a number of the other programs that they're developing slash premiering right now um, I would not be surprised um, if Stevens, probably not long, got much more from like a Cartoon Network support level. Because um, I really do think that like Teen Titans Go and then a number of other shows that they've got are really being like their priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at least it, it seems like they know what they have in yeah. this show and they will have it end well with plenty yeah. of warning. Um, Hopefully. I am. Yeah. So excited for another summer of Steven. We Me don't know too. what form it'll take, but I hope Steven bombs. Please, Steven bombs. Yeah. I'd like Steven bombs as opposed to one one a week. One a week. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see. But Ooh. on that note, what wins your week in genre and drama? She said, knowing the answer. It was timeless. The day Reagan was shot. It was it was very good. Um, I was really compelled by all the characters. No, it was it was, it was sweet can't bitter. go back and <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was sweet bitter. No, it was can't go back in a single pink rose. It was Steven Universe. What about you? 
It's like, obviously, it was amazing. It was so good. And like, this show just grabs you in the feels, you know, <laughs> like, it takes so much to, 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 to like beat out this week's amazing episode of the Americans, but Steven Universe did it like a regular episode of it, like we've had the last few weeks when I've done it. But these two, and then back to back, oh, my heart. It was so good. Okay, now we'll take a break and listen to a trailer and come back with our deep dive on White Snacks problem areas. The stars are wild. They're literally on fire. But they still show up no matter what problems they have. Just think of everybody's problems. The wealth gap's getting bigger. That's a problem. California's running out of water. That's a problem. My lip muscles are incredibly weak, which means I can rarely smile. That's a problem. My droopy eyelids. I don't really know how to fix that one for you. Denise. Everyone can point out the problems, but what happens when you start brainstorming some answers? Like maybe I could get a personal trainer for my lips. Cut! Yeah, we couldn't get a permit to film in a real meadow, but by making this set, I just created jobs for all the ants we hired as background actors. just can't fake that natural plastic aroma. That was a trailer for Wyatt Snack's Problem Areas, which is a documentary uh, series on HBO. A comedy documentary series, I should say, because it's obviously going for, for the funny. Um, but in, in it, uh, the, of course, the 10 episode first season, Wyatt Snack um, and his creative team are exploring uh, police brutality and through the, and the way that they are exploring that is through all the things that contribute to the very complicated relationships uh, that that especially uh, communities of color have with the police department and, and and the policing in this country. And so it is very large scale and then small scale to examine that. And I, first, just starting with that, what a great premise! What a great way to really dive in, and you can see why. <laughs> At Comic Con, he was getting real bored with, uh, uh, um, oh my goodness, People of Earth. People of Earth, as fabulous as he was on that show, he seems way more keyed in here. Yeah, he does. And I was actually talking with that with a friend of the show, Corey Barker, a little bit uh, because I was talking about People of Earth, and he didn't know that uh, Sinek had had like a significantly reduced role um, on season two, People of Earth, and I was just like, this is clearly why. Even though, like, this was probably that the research for this and everything probably started much sooner. Because um, they didn't, like, they didn't announce that this was getting series order until, like, the end of October, middle of last October. But that it was probably, like, getting developed in a lot of um, ways while he was probably supposed to be doing with People of Earth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I think, like, the doing this sort of profiles and police brutality approach that they're doing um from looking at concepts of police apologies to this idea of just policing in general to as uh the two most recent episodes with community policing and skid row policing is the whole concept of police as like a institution as a thing that is or is not necessarily necessary to a community and it's really thoughtful. It's um, it, it's not balanced um, because the I do think that the selection of folks that they pick, because 
and how Synax sort of responds to certain things indicates a degree of editorializing, which I do not have an issue with in this. I just couldn't find a better adjective um, and follow up to the way that the show sort of, at the very least, does not punch down when it's dealing with these particular um, policing issues, at the least, in terms of how he engages people uh, when he's talking to these um, police chiefs or when the experts he punches down with some of the experts that provide commentary through the television screen which i think is okay um but he's generally really respectful and um interested in making sure that their perspective comes through even as he still critiques it and i think that that's really important but at the same time i do like that this is still very driven from his perspective yeah, he is interested in having a conversation with a variety of informed people with yes. different opinions. Yeah. He is not interested in throwing people who disagree with each other on screen so they can yell at each other and not really produce anything uh, meaningful or interesting or get anywhere from it. And yes, there is editorializing here. The choice of which experts are going to bring on or which community members are going to bring on, it, it that's obviously going to affect what you get, but I really appreciate like everybody they bring on who don't always agree with each other comes from a very like has has specific and relevant knowledge in the field that they're being asked to comment upon or the 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 part of the daily life and experience that they're being asked asked to comment upon. Um, they are. Uh, they are informed about other aspects of different other perspectives and opinions. And uh, again, everybody is treated with respect. There's some skepticism sometimes. Yes. That's but, a good word for it. Yeah. But there's, but there's definitely respect and a level of, okay, let's actually talk about this and let's stop wasting our time by, you know, just not communicating or using the same two, like, punchlines or, or or using the same uh, talking points that we always see in these conversations. And I really appreciated that. We should talk a bit about the structure. Yeah, I think so too. Each episode is broken into like three or four different chunks where they talk about... Three. Yeah. Yeah, because there's like these little skits in the middle um, that then relate to... Like there's a lot of... There's some animation and stuff that relates to different um, discussions that they're having. But like, for example, the first episode... Uh, space problems, shit problems, Minnesota problems. So they look at this, and this, of course, all relates into the conversation about the current state of police brutality in the United States. Um, They talk about how how does space travel, um, sanitation, and Minnesota all tie into the the climate of discourse around police brutality and, uh, and policing in this country. They lay it out for you in the first episode, and I think it works really well. Second episode, NRA problems, chicken bone problems, Birmingham problems, talking about guns, talking about waste, talking about uh, um, racism, energy problems, millennial problems, community policing problems, that's episode three, food problems, rain problems, skid row problems is episode four. Um, and they it's very seamless, I think. Like, as they go from section to section, it really flows, and... Um, they spend they really dive in in significant very specific ways with these topics in a way that feels universal 
is very effective, but they also don't linger as long. I mean, any of these topics you could make a full episode on. But then you'd get mired and you'd lose the overall larger conversation they want you to keep referring back to. Yeah, and I, I think that the structure of the show is really sort of important to its success. Um, from the fact that, like, the first segment feels very much like a very brief snack-driven editorial, and it is. Um, and then the second segment um, is very animation-driven and sometimes feels a little sort of tongue-in-cheek a little bit, particularly like Millennial Problems. Um, and also to a lesser extent, rain problems. But then, like you said, that there's degrees in which these all sort of like end up tying together. And so like food problems, rain problems, and skid row problems, I think are a really good example of the show structure weaving a very sort of subtle sort of tapestry of, all right, so food rain, shelter, then we're going to talk about homelessness and police with homelessness, specifically within Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And that's really subtle, and it's not super apparent that they're like, you're supposed to draw connections. Um, Because they don't really refer back to, well, what if we just had retractable awnings all the time while they're discussing Skid Row? But it's all sort of built into this idea of community and how we interact with one another and how we make space, literally make space for one another when it's just like, well, umbrellas are really handy, but they also cause massive amounts of congestion on sidewalks when it's really crowded. And so this kind of a thing. And I really like that kind of aspect of it, even to this idea of like, harm in terms of guns and movies and how all this gets fed into a weird feedback loop and how this can create harm for us to something as innocuous as movies ostensibly creating a gun culture to something as innocuous as thrown out chicken bones presenting an issue for dogs and then to have all of this culminate in something as seemingly easy to deal with as a legitimate apology from a policing force that is supposed to protect us. And it's all just, again, done really, really subtly. And the show is really, it's really good. And it's just, it's really even keeled in that sense. Yeah. I also really like the the approach, like the presentation style. It's going for mm-hmm. this like seventies like uh educational yes, kind of Yes, that's thing. very good. Yeah. And it like down to the font and the set, like the the paneling and, and the yeah. buttons and everything. Uh and sim- down to how like that they represent like human beings in the animation. Uh-huh. Yeah. It yeah. feels like very PBS in the nineteen eighties to me. Yeah. And I really like that. Yeah, sorry. Please That's continue. Sinak is so comfortable on camera in this in this like a narrator and uh, presenter role. He like the direct to camera and all that works really well and sets up the different sections. I think very um, organically. The it, it's a natural extension of sort of what he was doing on on the Daily Show and on you know on different some of the other things we've seen him do, but. It it is you know there's a more authorial voice, and having like being the host as opposed to being the correspondent or you know some of the other ways we've seen him, just really 
his tone and demeanor and presence really works well for this kind of a show. And like, you can think of the different ways that like when we do the awnings thing, right. It's a, Mm -hmm. they have a British accent because like it just works great. It's it's, it's very funny. So it's fun to think of like some of the the choices they're making in the presentation style because they're very distinct. Uh, But having it all wrapped up in Sanak's charisma and delivery um, is very successful. And I, I don't know why more people aren't talking about this other than it airs on a Friday night on HBO, which is a And very that's good probably reason. why. Um, yeah. I think because I didn't know that it was airing on Friday nights. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's probably the reason why. Like, I, I sort of remember, like, this happening with... Um, I think people, like, were aware of, like... I think High Maintenance was airing on Fridays as well. And people were aware of it. But no one was really discussing it, I felt like. And I think a lot of that boils down to it being on Fridays on HBO. Um, and I think that's probably what's happening here as well. Um, yeah, and I, I really do love your point about the whole sort of 70s educational after-school vibe. Uh, because that was something I hadn't picked up on. But then as soon as you said it, I just went, oh, fuck. Yeah. It's very cosmos. Yeah. It's very... Yes. It's... It's very sort of public television hosted sort of type of thing down to, I bought all these books <laughs> from the library, yeah. seven different libraries and like going through them. And even it, it's just really clever and really funny. And as much as I sort of don't appreciate like a live studio audience slash, slash laugh track joke that he makes like right at the top of season, episode one, um, that the lack of an audience I think is a real benefit to this show Um, because it's not so much like a degree of it allows the viewer to have reflection, but because it just doesn't fit with what the show's presentation is um, since so much of it is like off screen, really Um, after that first segment, so much of it is like pre pre taped basically. And then just him responding to that pre-taped segment or the pre-taped interview questions that have been conducted with those aforementioned experts that we discussed. The we get to reading ten episodes. And obviously this is something that, you know, it's a complicated enough issue that I look forward to catching Are you gonna keep watching? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. I'm very excited to keep watching and uh, I was excited when I thought I had, like, they had dropped, like, the fourth one, because I didn't know when this aired. <laughs> um, and so I thought, that, like, the fourth one, HBO just dropped to, like, generate interest. Um, so I was really upset when I was just like, oh, there's not a fifth one yet. I Maybe they just made it all available. Or maybe they just decided to make it all available because John Oliver quit last week tonight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And now White Snack is taking over, um, to which I say yes. Um, and we should note, like, Oliver is one of the executive producers on this show as well. Um, and you can, I feel like his, you can sort of feel that to a certain degree in terms of what and how the show is structured. The structure, uh, the, yeah. yeah. But it's doing something distinctly different, I feel like, um, in its continued coverage of, and inspection of the police brutality um which which one of those do you think has was like sort of the most like of the police brutality segments that we've gotten so far which one do you think is sort of like the most um which one like spoke to you the most about like this particular issue so far well 
I'll come back to that. I just I wanted to say that they I'm gonna watch the the whole thing too. They could do another season of it, I'm sure. Like they're gonna yeah. have thirty different segments by the time the season is done, but they could do another season. Or they could pivot to talking about something else entirely for for the a new idea for season two. If they do a season two, like a new like starting point. A new problem that, area. That they yeah, exactly, right? That they that they branch out from. Um and it'll be it'll it'll be interesting to see if it, you know, gets people start watching it or it gets more buzz or if it gets renewed and what they, you know, decide to do in a season two. But as for you know, like I mean, I'm in Chicago. It I can't help but be very impacted by the Elgin segment because that's real close to me, just geographically. So um, that I thought, and and just the timing of of you know, and I guess spoilers for real life. They they uh, they there was an officer involved shooting um, it, with a police department that they had uh, followed around a while for one of the earlier segments because there hadn't been an officer involved shooting there in so long. Like um, twenty plus years, yeah. Yeah, and so that was particularly compelling and interesting. And so to see, and and they also edit it really well. They they setting up a distinct narrative and they execute it very well in that segment. But um, yeah, to see the ways in which the same issues just pop right back up, and the ways in which they don't, the ways that it, it's a little different, and the the many ways it's the same as other you know examples we've seen of officer involved shooting, uh, community reaction and police reaction. Um, but no, that's the one that I think sticks with me the most so far. What about you? Well, I do agree that like, um, and we should know that like the Elgin uh, segment is focused on this idea of community policing in which certain neighborhoods have police officers that basically their rent is subsidized and they live in the neighborhood and the degrees to which how communities respond to that and the degrees to which is this just an extension of police surveillance or all of this bundled up in that and i think that the discussion they have about that is really really good and i do think that your point about them ending up building a narrative because they went down to elgin in elgin elgin you say Elgin, thank you. I knew I was saying it wrong. Elgin in um, like December, I think, and then this happened. When did this? When did this shooting happen? Like three weeks after they were done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I do think that um, that's really good. I think that the Skid Row one is probably like the most radical, at least so far that they've depicted, and for good reason because Los Angeles is has really struggled um, with figuring out what to do with skid row um or how to handle skid row or like how to integrate skid row into the suddenly bustling and thriving and increasingly gentrified downtown los angeles area and this idea of just a steady phase out of police because this community is largely to a certain degree able to police itself and organize itself um I feel like there's been just a really steady escalation, even across these four episodes, about what particular things that they're tackling when they're dealing with police brutality, but also not even police brutality, just policing. And then, like, that, the fact that they're escalating to a certain degree in either radicalness or in terms of ideology i think i'm really interested to see what's coming next because i feel like you can't really 
go down from having an expert, well, one of their experts discuss this idea of slowly phasing out the police. And that, that I think, naturally leads into another sort of discussion that I'd be really curious to see if they visited a community in which they don't actually really have a police force. And how does that work? How does that function? And that kind of a thing. I'd be really curious to see what basically the next episode is and what the next installment in this discussion is. Yeah. Well, and that's the right word for it, too. It's a discussion. It's a documentary series. It's a it's a uh, documentary series with comedic overtones, but yeah, more than it's anything. it's very funny. Yeah. Like, yeah. All things considered, right? <laughs> Given the topics. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, more than anything, it's a discussion, and it's one that I hope more people will start to have. So, listeners, go check out Why It's Next Problem Areas. Yeah, absolutely. Please go check it out. Like, I mean, an episode just aired after you're listening, as you're listening to this. One episode just aired. Just a few last days ago. Night. So, like, yeah. you know, last night, go go check it out. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's, you know, do a few show notes here at the end of the episode. You can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the podcast. You can leave us a comment there um, and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. Let us know that you're watching problem areas um you can also email us the televerse at gmail.com you can like our page on facebook and start up a conversation there you can find us on itunes with an m4a chapter feed and an mp3 unchaptered feed and we're also up in stitcher and we'd appreciate ratings or reviews either place and of course we're both on twitter i am at the televerse noel you are at noel rk thank you so much noel thank you kate thank you everyone for listening we'll be back next week another episode of the televerse mm-hmm.